Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Me, Gabe Derrick. Him, Gabe Derrick. <laughs> Me. So every year. <laughs> I don't know. So every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two classic twin movies about a cop who skips through time with a chance to redeem himself by stopping a villain who ruined his future. It's Demolition Man versus Time Cop. Let the time travel games begin. So, as usual, let's kick up this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 8th of October 1993, Demolition Man was released. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. A police officer is brought out of suspended animation in prison to pursue an ultra-violent nemesis who is loose in a non-violent future society. So Gabe, a man who loves his Stallone movies, his Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, his classic 80s action movies and the mid-90s resurgence of Stallone and Schwarzenegger. How did you originally catch Demolition Man when it was released and what was that experience like for you? Hmm. I can't quite remember. I must have been too young to have seen this one at the cinema. So I suppose I probably just saw it on VHS sometime in the mid-90s, I think. I don't have a very indelible memory of watching it, unlike Time Cop, um, which we'll get to. But, yeah, I must have just watched it on VHS in the 90s, I think. Demolition Man was only released about a few months, like less than a year before Time Cop. Why would your memory of Time Cop be so much clearer? Well, when when we get to Time Cop, I'll explain. How about that? Oh, like travelling in time. You've got to actually wait till we get to that place in time. That's right. Sure. Okay. Precisely. Um, for me, this film was released in 1993, but I think it was a case that that was the US release date, but it actually was released overseas, you know, six months later, as was the norm back in the day. And 1994 for our podcast listeners, was a very formative year for Ben Phillips Esquire. Um, I will now reveal how old I am in that case. 94 was my gap year between school and uni. Uh, Gabe and I, I think, are about eight years apart, aren't we? Wow, you're way older than I thought you were. (laughs) Dang. So I was working. (laughs) Gramps over here. (laughs) Look at this guy. Look at this guy. (laughs) So I was working overseas in uh, England, very common in Australia. Actually, not common, but if you go to like a private school, you might do a gap year where you go overseas and work at a school as an English teacher or sports teacher, and then you might return and do some further study after that. So it's basically a way of escaping the folks, the parental abode, and, uh, you know, exploring and, you know, sort of striking out on your own. And I recall seeing that poster for Demolition Man on those giant, huge posters. I think it was the Odeon Cinema, which is one of the most iconic cinemas in London. Um, And I think I spent something like, at the time, about £15 to see it as a treat. And to give you context back then, I was earning £50 per week. Wow. So I basically spent a third of my weekly salary to see Demolition Man in 1994. And... uh, Maybe because I was just so scarred by the experience having to outlay that much cash to see what would just be a disposable action film. But it did leave an indelible memory for that reason. And 
I must have been sitting in the cinema just trying to like suck as much of the value off the screen with my eyeballs as possible to try and get my, my values worth. So for that reason, better or worse, uh, it left a memory with me, uh, potentially a scarring one, and certainly wasn't worth a third of my weekly salary. <laughs> well, what's weird about your story is, Ben, I'm looking up on the internet and the average movie ticket price in 1993 was £3.20. So, mate, I don't know what sort of luxurious cinema you were in, but you might have overpaid. They, they saw this. But there's two things, actually. I love that you basically just like Sherlock Holmes me during the podcast yep. <laughs> to verify my information. <laughs> and secondly, they probably saw a sucker Australian coming you know, a, a young and impressionable young man who just pulled out these various coloured notes that were unfamiliar to him and just handed them across the counter without any idea. And some little candy bar kid went home that night and bought like about 24, you know, warm lagers to celebrate. So maybe I was just taken for a ride. It's a possibility. Who's to say? So let's jump then to our personal connection or not to Time Cop. So- Within about a year, on the 16th of September, 1994, Time Cop was released, and here's its synopsis from IMDb. Max Walker, an officer for a security agency that regulates time travel, must fend for his life against a shady politician who is intent on changing the past to control the future. So, Gabe, walk me through when and how you first watched Time Cop. Uh, I must have seen Time Cop on VHS again at my... I'm going to say 11th or 12th birthday party. So I think me and my friends had rented Time Cop and Beverly Hills Cop 2. And let me tell you, both delivered in spades. It was uh, quite the double for, you know, 11 or 12-year-olds. Very good. Two big thumbs up. Doesn't uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2 start with, like, a topless woman? Like, I don't know if it's- I'm sure there's, like, some yeah. sort of breast nudity or something. Oh, like there is. There is in the movie. That, which I imagine if you're 11 or 12. <laughs> yeah. It ticks every box, you know. Um, I don't know if it opens on that, but Axel definitely goes to a um, strip club at some point in the in the film. I think he drags Billy Roseweed or whatever his name is along. Anyway, look, it was a, it was a great double. Me and the lads were all satisfied. Uh, had a great time. Probably had some cake. <laughs> oh, wow, fantastic. Um, I'm sure I left a memory. Uh, okay, so let's jump into a quick little history lesson as to how these two movies came about. First of all, let's have a guess here. We talk about sometimes whether each film was influenced or motivated by the creation of the other. Do you think there's a connection between these two films before I give you a quick little Hollywood shallow dive? I would say no, but I feel like you're setting something up. So I'm going to say yes, but I don't know what that is. <laughs> it was the double, 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 double switch. No. Oh. Um, it appears that these films both were generated uh, individually of each other. Oh. Well, great. <laughs> don't I feel like a fool? <laughs> don't I feel like I just spent £15 on a movie ticket in 1993? <laughs> Look, I couldn't find much information about Demolition Man, which is surprising because the film wasn't received with great fanfare at the time, but has actually become a bit of a cult favourite, as often, as is often the case. And it just appears this film was developed as part of the traditional Hollywood process. So wasn't based on any pre-existing properties at, at all. And it was just a great vehicle for Stallone to play within his wheelhouse as an action hero 
but albeit set in a different location to, enorm- to what he normally played in. Time Cop, though, actually is based on a property. It's actually based on Time Cop, a story created by one of the co-writers, Mike Richardson, who was also a comic book writer, and actually appeared as an anthology comic for Dark Horse Comics back in the day. So I wouldn't have thought this is the traditional comic book hero story you'd find because back in the day I always thought they were like people with capes. But that's the origins of this film. It came about, and we'll get to it in the reviews, but this actually was a more complicated story than what I expected from a Stallone, sorry, Stallone, what am I saying, from a uh, Van Damme movie. And it doesn't surprise me that some of the deeper thinking and time spent on the plotting was actually based on a story in the first place. Wait, wait. So you you were surprised at the complexity of the plot in a Stallone movie, a, a Van Damme, a fucking, now I'm doing it, a JCVD movie. It's contagious. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get to it, we'll get to it, we'll get to it. Um, okay, let's start with the review of Demolition Man. And at the end of these two reviews, I want to circle back to a question which we started asking ourselves at the start of this podcast series, but we have veered a little bit away from it in recent episodes, and that is which movie did this idea better? So let's start with picking apart Demolition Man first of all. Did you like it? What worked for you about this film and what didn't float your boat? Yeah, this movie rules. <laughs> like, I wonder if this was one of those movies that was sort of, I don't know, critically or unpopular with a majority of kind of viewers back in the day, but it's actually now grown in its, not in its esteem, because it's not like it's turned into some sort of, you know, fucking remains of the day or something, but. But I feel like people really like this movie now, and I'm certainly one of them. It's a, it's just, it's just a hell of a good time, hell of a good time all around. Can I just jump in quickly before you continue with your review and mention something interesting? That was my review, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow, yes, we're really adding insights to. <laughs> what do you want from me? You want me to talk about the photography or something? Who do you think I am? <laughs> Sorry, I had the wrong podcast host in mind. Yeah, that's right. The point you raise is actually very interesting about when a film was released at the time and how it is critically received and then how it's subsequently received in years gone by. And just recently this week, Wayne Kramer, the director of Running Scared with Paul Walker, and we spoke about that particular film recently as being a really underrated film, he proposed this week an idea where essentially after 10 years, the director of film has an opportunity to relitigate the reviews of the film by critics and fans. I don't even know how that would work in practice. I mean, you can't bring Roger Ebert back from the dead to do another review of the film. You're not going to approach 22 different thousand people and ask them to reconsider after 10 years their review. But the point he was making, I think, which is more uh, a thought experiment, is can we have the opportunity that the reviews aren't crystallised in ice like Stallone in this film? Get it? Uh-huh. Huh? Huh? I do get it. You see what I'm doing there? Very clever. Um, and basically have a chance to reconsider them because there are plenty of films that we've seen, and I think between you and me, one of the ones that we talk about a lot is Mummy Vice. Oh, yeah. Mummy Vice wasn't received as well then as it probably is now, and some of the things it was most criticised for – which was the performance by Colin Farrell and the HD cinematography, 
is actually really appreciated now in retrospect. Yeah. So what do you think of that idea about going back and relitigating a review of a film and saying, oh, look, it was misunderstood. A Groundhog Day, another example, was kind of considered as a disposable Bill Murray comedy vehicle back in the day with Ivan Reitman, the director. And then in times it's actually been embraced by like various religious groups like um, Tibetan monks and so on as being a film talking about the fragility of life and the opportunity to try and redeem yourself and much more than just being a C-grade quality comedy. Yeah, I wonder if it's um, genre movies in particular, action movies or horror movies, maybe comedies that kind of grow in appreciation in the long run and it's actually the kind of more, you know, prestige you know, Oscar Beatty movies that actually fall. Like people just forget about them and don't give a shit. Um, you know, like when was the last time you thought about um, The Reader, you know? Oh, it's so funny she mentioned The Reader because there are all these Kate Winslet vehicles I think of in the mid-2000s like Revolutionary Road, whatever it's called, and so on. And no one watches those films again and they were critically uh, acclaimed at the time. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's the genre films that are looked down upon more at their moment of release. And then I'd go even further and say comedies as a particular genre. And then other films, like who, who talks about some of those films anymore? Like what's an example? I mean, this is the problem. They're so forgettable, some of them, that I can't think at the time. But there are so many nominees. Like even Terrence Malick, who I love, does anyone go back and revisit The New World? Then that is a bit harsh, I know. But there are films like that which get a bit more buzz than main. that buzz sort of like dissipates over time 10 years later. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, uh, you know, like Step Brothers, man, I must have watched that movie a million times and there's no way I'm going back to rewatch Frost Nixon. You know what I mean? Like same year and like, fuck, I haven't talked about Frost Nixon since – since the year it came out, like no one gives a shit. Um, yeah. Frost Nixon is a perfect example, actually. It's a really good example because um, I hadn't even thought of that title again since then, since you've mentioned it now. But that film was an Oscar nominee for, I think, both actors, wasn't it? Yeah, and it, actually it was the same year as The Reader and Revolutionary Road, um, which you, you know, what else came out that year? What a year, what a year. Um, Changeling or Doubt. You know, they were all fine movies when I saw them, but. You know, when I reach for that uh, movie to 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 watch on a Friday night, yeah, I'm not reaching for Changeling, you know. So the interesting thing about uh, Demolition Man is that in some respects it actually has aged well. I mean, what do you think? What do you think does work, what are we, 27 years after the fact about this film? Because just recently they announced in the last couple of weeks potentially a sequel. Now, that happens all the time where there's talk of a sequel, but the fact is the film has developed a cult following. It was very influential and for many 11-year-olds like yourself at the time or many backpacking Australians like myself overseas. <laughs> um, what do you think about the film? Is, is about the film that has lasted? Because time travel films that are set in a future often aren't future-proof because they try and forecast a world and it just doesn't stand up. Like they've got four-by-three boxy CRT TVs, they have like wacky shoulder pads, which is some sort of uh, spin on the 80s look at the time. What do you think it is about this film that despite trying to forecast a future so far into the future, 
it manages to sort of somewhat be still engaging? I think because its future is so silly. Like I think because they have really made a a kind of future America that's I don't think they're trying to actually predict what that, you know, future looks like. It's not like, um, I don't know, it's not like um, uh, a, I, I don't feel like they got a whole bunch of futurists together in a room and had deep conversations about what maybe <laughs> the world would look like or technology would be. Um, I can't, what year is this movie? What's it set in the future? 20, 20. It's like 2049 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't think they got together and really pondered those big questions. Twenty thirty two. Unless that's where they came up with the three seashells, you know. But yeah, I think just just how goofy they made it, and you know, putting a little touch of the sort of uh, what do you call it, tip of the hat to some of those classic dystopian novels. You know, um, Sandra Bullock's character is called Lenina Huxley or whatever. But I really don't think they went, oh gee, a brave new world. Let's base our future on anything like that. And I think that's what sort of makes it really work, you know, like they've embraced the kind of goofiness um, and that makes it feel fun, you know, and not some sort of, yeah, treatise on our the future of our species. Well, it's funny you mentioned the idea of bringing together a variety of futurists because that's exactly what Steven Spielberg did in Minority Report. He brought across a lot of people from different areas of science and asked them to try and predict everything from the shape of cars to communication protocols to clothes and so on. And that film actually really stands up, I think. And they also did a good job of trying to blend the old with the new. So that's, I guess, when you're really making a substantive effort to try and replicate and forecast what will happen. You see the same thing with Interstellar by Christopher Nolan. I agree. I think this film actually is closer to idiocracy. Mm. Uh Who's that by again? Who's the maker of Idiocracy who did King of the Hill and so on? Mike Judge. Mike Judge, exactly. And Silicon Valley, people might know him most recently for that live-action sitcom. Um, Mike Judge's Idiocracy just basically looks at the current world and says, you know what, we did some dumb stuff. And I might add, that was written and made before our current political climate. So that says a lot. And it's in the future where basically people have just become stupid. And it's sort of like, uh, I guess, exaggerating what he was seeing or what we see now into the future. In some ways, this film is similar to that. Um, I think it was looking at trends in the 90s and just amplifying them. So the idea that if people were increasingly eating less meat um, and becoming vegetarian, then the future is a meat-free future. Um in 93, we're kind of past the big muscle-bound 80s films like Commando and Rambo 2, which we've also done a podcast episode on. And we're kind of moving into, you know, the idea of a, a leaner athletic hero and the idea of, you know, Keanu Reeves-style good vibes. <laughs> and this film seems to be pretty anti-liberalism. Would you agree? Wait, what? Like it seems like an anti-liberal film. It's the future in this film is... No violence. I suppose it's quite conservative regarding sex. It's very chaste in that way. Uh, no one swears. Uh, it feels like the sort of film where at the time they were thinking, 
a man just can't be a man anymore. We're being emasculated. We're being neutered. And then Stallone lands in 2032. It's like, you know what? I've got muscles. I want to kiss and have sex. I want to eat a burger with red meat. I want to swear. I'm like, I want to crap on the can without using these mysterious three shells. <laughs> crap on the can. That's right. I got a shit. I'm going to drive my, my sweet. What sort of car does he have? It's a real nice one when he gets his old, you know, muscle car out. Yeah, it's a, but it's a, it's a petrol-driven muscle car. Exactly, exactly. Like, don't you feel like a, basically the film in some respects, he is the Republican dream? Yeah, totally. And he's in this kind of like left-wing future and the left-wing future doesn't work, doesn't work. You like punch the baddies. But maybe that's like, I'm pretty sure Stallone's probably a Republican. So maybe this was like, this is the future that liberals want. Um, I mean, to be fair to the future. Care for what you wish for. There wouldn't have been a problem if Simon Phoenix hadn't been woken up from cryosleep. So they seem to have been doing pretty well. And the the present that Stallone came from seemed like a real shithole, um, which I think is also in the future, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. But not far into the future. I mean, it's basically... They're frozen in 1996, so yeah, right. You know, only two or three years in the future. It's basically here and now, and then reanimated it. You know, in 2032. Mm, mm. But yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. But but also that that's really funny, and and I think it creates a really strong kind of uh, juxtaposition. And you know, like I don't know. That's one of the things that really works for the movie for for me. This kind of yeah, like really innocent idiot future, like, you know, Benjamin Bratt and Rob Schneider, all the stuff that they do, you know, I, I think that stuff's all great. And maybe that's the sort of stuff that people didn't like at the time in 1993 that, you know, it did comedy. Like I wouldn't say this film is a comedy, but there's a lot of comedy in it. Oh, 100%. I mean, I think actually the casting of Sandra Bullock saves the film in that regard, in that she actually, I think, is really good. You can totally see the star factor in Sandra Bullock in this film. Like, she's good-looking, she's likeable. She is kind of in an interesting position in this film in that she ultimately becomes the love interest and is a bit dopey, but compared to the others in the team, she's the more sophisticated, smarter, proactive person compared to Benjamin Bratt. Like, he's basically portrayed as being just a left-wing goof. Like, he's no idea. He's entirely emasculated. And I feel, in comparison to him, she's much closer to Stallone. But she is basically Stallone's protege learning from him, right through to the very end where basically they implicitly have sex. Yeah, yeah. I think she's incredibly, yeah, like you say, well well cast, her sort of chirpiness. Um, And I guess, what was this, a year before Speed, her kind of big... Big breakout role. Um, but, you know, look, Benjamin Bratt. Yeah, I think Speed was 94. Yeah, right. So she was probably cast around the same time. But, yeah, like you just this was basically the crest of her big career break. And she's she's very likeable. Yeah, that's right. But, look, Benjamin Bratt's well, very well cast in this. I think we were knocking him for a movie he appeared in, uh, Red Planet. But here I think he's great, you know. I think everyone's really good here. You know, Stallone is able to lean into his Stallone persona, um, uh, and I guess sort of take the piss out of it a little bit, um, but also do that thing which is like the only person who can save. Yeah, uh, emasculated liberal future is 
you know, red meat and big turds. Yeah, exactly. Actually, we should say, by the way, speaking of throwing compliments to performances, I think Wesley Snipes is fantastic in this film. Oh, he's awesome. I think he's funny. I think he looks great. Um, I think he nails the villain really well. Like a good villain is someone that you kind of like like and despise at the same time. Like he's incredibly charismatic. Um, he's incredibly athletic. Like you can tell he's the one who's a more of a trained fighter than Stallone. Stallone's just sort of like slugging with a droopy dro- lower lip as he just sort of like whacks his arms into the air. Whereas Snipes is like doing that choreographed style fighting that we saw in Blade about five years later. He's really good. Like there's a whole different conversation about what happened to Wesley Snipes, which probably is part of the same conversation as what happened to Mickey Rourke. Like someone who could have kicked on really well, he was coming off, white man can't jump. Uh, This was a great vehicle for him, this particular film. It, he he's just so charismatic on screen. Like it reminds me about what was everything great about Wesley Snipes. And if he was somehow able to have kept his ego in check on set during the making of a film, I'm sure his career could have ended up being much better than what it was. And perhaps if he'd actually also engaged a more honest and reliable accountant <laughs> uh, to avoid tax evasion charges, that might have actually also helped him. I, I thought he was actually part of some sort of weird anti-tax sect, like that it's not that he just didn't pay taxes, that he was, you know, part of some weird group who had some sort of fundamental, um, you know, uh, what do you call it, like uh, not opinion, what do you call it? What, what, what is the word I'm looking for here, Ben? A value system, uh, mantra, uh, code. Yeah, which was like, yeah, 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 all that, just like anti-tax um, or anti like anti-federal anti-federalist, I don't know. But um but yeah, so was it was he basically an asshole? Is that how he sunk himself? Is he renowned to being a dick? Is this like Patton Oswald's story about Blade 3 or something? You know. Yeah, that's precisely the story I'm thinking about. So, I'm going by the Blade 3 story, uh which has been documented by many people on the set. But that was the film which was directed by what's his name? The bald screenwriter Goya Goya? Who wrote Batman v Superman? David Goya. David Goya. David Goya. Yeah. David Goya wrote, I think, the first two Blades and then directed the third, Blade Trinity. And on that set, allegedly, this goes by the stories of some of the uh, screenwriters, some of the actors and so on, he was in, in character. So he stayed in character as a half vampire, half human for the entire production and refused to speak to David Goya at all. And had to be referred to as Blade or Mr. Blade. Mr. Blade. Ha. And apparently, yeah, and apparently alienated everyone, including his two co-stars, whose careers were kind of on the rise at that stage, Ryan Reynolds and what's the one? Jessica Biel, I think. Yeah, but look, those two characters shouldn't have even been in the movie anyway. Like, it's called fucking Blade. It's not called Blade and the, you know, dead shit bunch. Fuck. It was called Blade Trinity, which gives you the idea that it's actually, well, Blade Trinity can mean... Two things. A, it's the third film, and two, it means there are three people that form the team of Blade. But I think that film was written and those guys were cast with the idea of handing the torch from him to them, much like I think it was 
Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, where the torch was meant to be handed from Tom Cruise to Gen- Jeremy Renner. We dodged a bullet there. And Tom Cruise in that film, <laughs> Tom Cruise there said, uh-uh, I don't think so. And in Blade Trinity, uh, apparently Wesley said the same thing, except Wesley had less influence, less control, more of a diva, allegedly, right. than a exec- executive producer with power. So, anywho- Apparently, his ways continued, and I guess at this point in this, his career, during Demolition Man, he was probably in that point where he was thinking he was pretty hot shit. Yeah. Well, look, the 90s, he was great in the 90s. King of New York, New Jack City, Jungle Fever, White Man Can't Jump, Passenger 57, man, always bet on black. Boiling Point, not so much. Rising Sun, kind of racist. Uh, Demolition Man, classic, you know, drop zone. Okay, maybe not. Um, but, yeah, like- oh. We're gonna we'll do a podcast uh, about drop zone versus terminal velocity. Ha! Classic with Charlie Sheen. Yeah, another twin movies episode coming up. Write that down. We should. Those are good. Those are classic. Yeah, they're- I mean they're not classics. They're quite bad, but <laughs> I do use that term classics too generously. Yeah, but I think everyone does. It's a classic. It's a classic. You know. Yeah. Um, a classic actually should mean it's quality and historic, opposed to just being old. <laughs> yeah, but Demolition Man's a classic. That's true. That's true. Let's uh, tie a bow on this review, Gabe, and perhaps end by saying, what did this film do best with the premise that worked for it? Mm. Uh, What do you mean? Well, we've got two films here based on the same idea, the same concept. Which film did it better? I think what this film does really well, it's very simple as an idea, but it's a fish-out-of-water situation. The fish here is taken from the past and thrown into the future but more than that, he's the opposite fish in his new world. So if you're going to basically totally disorientate a character by having them jump 25 years into the future, double down on that and make them someone who just has a personality that's entirely at odds with that future. And the whole idea of a muscle-bound, sex-doing, meat-eating, swearing, crapping kind of a guy and throw him into a future where all those things are frowned upon. And that, to me, is one of the best ways to take advantage of that premise. I feel like you're throwing a little bit of uh, shade at Time Cop. Which brings us to our review of Time Cop. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Aha. Nice (laughs) segue. So let's uh, switch lanes. Uh, Gabe, tell me what you liked and what grinded your gears about Time Cop. I don't think I'd seen this for at least a decade, maybe more, but I actually um, f- was quite pleasantly surprised by this uh, film. I did quite enjoy it. Uh, I quite enjoyed it a lot. I mean, it's a, it's a real 1990s-feeling movie, like, you know, the looks of the goons, hey, classic JCVD, Ron Silver, but... um. I thought there was some really engaging or interesting ideas. You know, even just that opening scene where, like, the guy holds up the sort of, like, I don't know, Confederate wagon or whatever with, like, laser guns. That's just cool. Um, or the guy who's gone back to the 1930s um, to, you know, buy stocks so as he makes money in the future. I just think – I just thought there's some cool ideas in this and, you know, also JCVD does the splits epically. So, yeah, I, I actually – I enjoyed this a lot more than I thought I would and a lot more than I remembered I did. Okay. Do you want to hear my short, sharp review of Time Cop? Okay, hit me. 
Brace Yourself. All right. I fucking loved it. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. I really like this film. Yeah, I really like this film. So I think I'd only seen bits and pieces of this film on TV. Uh, It's one of those films that I thought I'd seen the whole film, but I hadn't. I'd probably seen fragments here and there scattered on like TV on Friday or Saturday nights throughout my childhood and throughout uni and stuff. And this also came out in 94 too, but I didn't see it overseas because £15 was too much to pay for a movie back then. But I've caught fragments here and there since, and I think I'd basically pieced together the, the film in my mind. But I hadn't seen the, the whole film from woe to go. And I really enjoyed this film. Um, I think this film is great. And my biggest question is, why hasn't someone remade this film? Because people remake a lot of bad films, and that's a good thing in the sense that if the film's concept is excellent, but the execution of that concept was terrible, that to me is a great example of a property that is ripe to be remade. Like basically, you get get another do-over. Do it again, but better. Uh, When they try and remake a great film, uh, which has a great concept, like Total Recall, which they did in 2012, it's like, what's the point? Like, it was done really well the first time. The special effects still stand up really well. The visual effects are pretty good still as well. There's no need. This film, I thought, you know what? It's only Van Damme, opposed to being Stallone and Schwarzenegger. So on the tiers, he's, I guess you'd say he's B or C grade compared to them. Mm-hmm. Still a great actor, an action actor, but not not Arnie, not Sylvester. And I, the film starts off and it's got a fantastic opening scene, as you mentioned. Spoilers for Time Cop if you haven't seen this film from 1994. <laughs> but the film starts off set like in a landscape that resembles a scene out of the assassination of Jesse James. It's basically a raining kind of Western. And it looks really good. Like, it's actually shot really well. Uh, Peter Himes, the director, is also the cinematographer. And you see this guy do like a a hold-up. It's like one man against, what, ostensibly 10 or so. And they're like commuting, they're transporting gold or something. And he pulls out these like, I think they're actually regular guns, but laser sights and they shoot really fast. Oh, they're just real fancy guns though. So they're basically like more advanced machine guns. They, they're guns they didn't have in- They're like a more advanced machine- In the Civil War. Yeah. And he mows them all down straight away. Um, it's a bit confusing because he actually has like really bad teeth, which is a bit confusing because if he's time traveled, he probably would have great teeth. So that's weird. Um, but anyway, he mows them all down and the film starts, cut to credits. And- I just think there are so many beats in this film that are done really well and the script is really tight that I'm just stunned that they haven't actually remade it because it just feels like the sort of film that's cheesy enough that you could do more seriously and not famous enough that people would feel like you're stepping on the legacy of someone like Van Damme, whose legacy isn't as respected as those other 80s heroes. Um, I think in 2014 so they were planning a remake or reboot and they hired some writers for it. I believe the guys who wrote Myst- is there a movie called Mysterious Island? Yeah, you're stepping on my trivia, bud. Oh, I'm sorry. You're stepping on my trivia coming up. But you're right, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Spoilers for the podcast ahead. <laughs> um, um yeah, they did hot. Hire- it is one of those films though that that's not surprising, right? You feel like it's one of those snippets of 
film gossip news, you've read a thousand times about this film and Highlander and many other 80s and 90s films where they do spend some cash doing a draft or two of a potential sequel and then tease out whether the hero like Stallone or like Van Damme may return in that role or may return as a mentor figure to hand the reins to, you know, a protege to carry on the franchise like Blade Trinity. I mean, I would way prefer to see a Time Cop remake than a Highlander remake or a The Crow remake or, you know, some of those other early and mid-90s movies. Um, I mean, Highlander's not a mid-90s movie, but, you know, those movies that people have suggested or have been in the process of being remade for all the reasons that you said, like, it's it's just a cool story. Like, and it does its time travel real real well, you know, Um what sort of time travel rules do they have? Like when Ron Silver gets cut as the young version of himself, the old version of him, like, grows a scar. Um, I love shit like that. It's basically the Back to the Future rules, isn't it? So essentially if something happens in the past, it has a direct influence on the future. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, like one timeline, not like- Yeah, so one timeline, yeah. Not like some sort of sprawling, you know, like like it's simple enough that you don't need, you know, what do they say in that movie Looper, turn your brain to- to spaghetti or fr- mash your brain into fried eggs. I don't know, whatever the fuck they say. But, but yeah, like it's, it's, it's simple enough and you can understand it's like time travel rules. Real clear, real clear. It's not like primer. You don't have to sit there with a, a dang diagram. Well, let's just very quickly, for the benefit of our audiences and to get our heads straight, if we're going to look at which film does a premise better, let's just really quickly, and this might be an oxymoron to say this, and simply try and describe the basic trends in time travel movies that exist in Hollywood right now. Okay, so we have the Back to the Future film, which is one timeline. You can go back into the past, and if you do something and change in the past, it will ripple forward to the future. So in Back to the Future, Marty McFly hits Biff, basically, you know, takes Biff down a peg or two, and in the future, Biff's no longer the bully. He's become basically a guy that is cleaning and stuff for Marty McFly's family. So one timeline with a resonating effect. Is that a fair description of that particular model? Yeah, I think so. You know, when he goes back to his hometown in part two where stuff's changed, it's all turned into like a, you know. Dystopian future. uh, Slum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's right. You know, uh, Biff gets the almanac and becomes rich. Um, I mean, what's one? So T2, Terminator 2, same rule. Yeah. Right? One timeline. No fate but what we make. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So then you've got that model. Uh, the T2 rule is the further you go back in time, though, although you'll change the future, you won't as directly change it. So you want to basically go far back just enough to be close enough to the present to influence what happens, but not so far back that you create other possibilities. Yeah? I mean, philosophically, it's slightly weird because- are people just blinked out of existence? Like, am I sitting here one day and then someone goes back in time according to the rules of, say, T2, does something, I no longer exist and bang, I just am blinked out of existence? Is it really one hard timeline? That's the rule that's execution in Looper. So let's get to Looper. In Looper, the way it works is they do actually, like, pop in and out on screen, like just like a light switch, and they just disappear. Um Interestingly enough, in terms of visual execution in Back to the Future, 
Marty McFly slowly starts kind of like becoming transparent to indicate that his future is being erased, right? But either way, they they do just disappear, it seems to be. Uh, what are the other examples, Gabe? What are the other trends? There's the latest Terminator film where in that particular theory different timelines occur. Yeah. And in Avengers Infinity War in that particular war, that story, correct me if I'm wrong, they're just different timelines or there's no backwards and forwards, it just becomes the new present. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I mean, what's, you know, what we, I mentioned it briefly before, but like um, Primer, which is a, you know, really great movie, but absolutely mind boggling in terms of trying to follow it. I think that's one that has sort of like multiple, multiple times, like multiple timelines. Sort of all coexisting. It's got multiple timelines, but you can actually be, you can actually appear in a timeline with yourself, your older self, mm. because there is a scene there where he watches himself do something, right? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think I think something great that Time Cop does is you're not allowed to touch yourself in time. Like if you go back in time and see yourself. So that it's a great premise. Whose idea was that? Because that's become a bit of a trademark with many time travel movies that if you touch yourself, occupy the same space, the world implodes. And I actually always loved that idea, but I can't recall where I first saw it. And then I watched this film, I went, oh, did this film make this idea mainstream? Because it's a really simple but effective idea, isn't it? Like you don't have to have to explain it scientifically. I think an audience just gets the idea that, oh, that makes sense. Like you can't have two of the same thing together. Yeah, and not only that, you're waiting to see what happens when, because you know that's going to happen at some point, and you probably know it's going to happen to you know uh, Ron Silver as the villain, and so you're like you're like, oh, when's he going to get pushed into himself? And then he does, and the execution of it's fantastic. Like I thought it would actually happen, there'd be like a flash of light or something, but they actually totally lean into the grotesque idea where using 1994 computer generated effects, he blurs into himself and basically turns into like a sort of bubbling mess of flesh and blood, which fortunately doesn't explode like you'd probably get in a Sam Raimi version. It just kind of like slowly shrinks into nothing. But essentially it's a bit of almost David Cronenberg body horror too, isn't it? Yeah, that's great. I love it. I love it. Um, And I guess also, you know, this is amongst the pantheon of classic JCVD movies where he gets to be in it twice. He's not really two characters like in, you know, Maximum Risk or Double Impact, um, but he does get to be two Van Dams. What I love about this movie is that it totally leans into that whole idea of two people occupying the same space together. So what's better than doing just one Van Dam set of splits or one Van Dam kickboxing kicks? It's doing two. That's right. That's right. Um, but, yeah, I think I, I, I really, I'm, I'm really surprised that they haven't remade this. Um, and look, credit to Peter Hyams, uh, who directed this movie. He's He's got to be one of the sort of classic journeyman directors who just, who just sort of hit, hit doubles, a lot of doubles, never, never, never absolutely cracked one out of the park, but just kind of consistently made reasonably good movies. <laughs> like... Well, he also did uh, End of Days with another muscle-bound action icon, 
Arnold Schwarzenegger, which will feature in one of our upcoming episodes of Twin Movies, End of Days. Uh, and yeah, you're right. Like he's not a film who he's not a filmmaker who's known as an auteur. No, not at all. But um, but you know, Running Scared, um, Time Cop, Sudden Death. Sudden Death's actually a pretty good JCVD movie. The Relic. The Relic's actually pretty underrated. Um, I mean, 2010. Yeah, but uh, Capricorn One. That's pretty great. And and like you said before, he's his own DOP, which I always loved. You, you love to see. And this film actually looks really good. I think. Like I think the film's shot quite well. He's really like gone for like a lot of atmosphere with this giant uh, three-story house, which is totally unnecessary for a, a couple without children. And he sets it at night, so it's raining to try and give it lots of different interesting angles with light and lots of opportunities for the characters to crawl over the roof and fall and slide around. And so he makes the most of the space and I think he shoots the film really well. I think the action's quite well done. Um as we often criticise with some movies that learnt the wrong lessons from the Bourne films, is a sense of geography. And if you're going to have someone like JCVD doing action, you do want to actually see master shots of him doing, you know, the splits and doing and kicks. And he does it multiple times in this movie. <laughs> so actually, let's jump to a few criticisms of this film. Um Okay, so you cast JCVD, who's known for kickboxing and the splits. <laughs> it's just ludicrous that some of the scenes where he's basically like just unnecessarily in white underpants doing the splits, <laughs> where just I feel like I, I think I think I think Van Damme probably had in his contracts for movies that they had to have kind of these. I wouldn't say they're gratuitous. But like ass shots of him. They're, they're, they're gratuitous. They're gratuitous. All of his movies. No, but but you think they're gratuitous because because you're a, you're a straight man, Ben, um, and you just can't appreciate. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable with my sexuality. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but like so many of his movies. Oh man, like do you remember? I don't know if you've seen recently um, Double Impact, where he plays. Uh, the two twin brothers and one's like the tough guy and one's the kind of soft guy and the soft guy is like teaching a ballet class and the opening shot of him is just rump. <laughs> like <laughs> it's all-timer. It's so good. All of his movies have that. Like he, he must have really thought highly of his of his ass. But I've got to say though, I mean, and this relates to his kickboxing and so on, it's not exactly a skill that sits comfortably with the idea of being a metropolitan policeman. Like, for a start, your outfits are like, you know, tight chinos. They're not really designed with the elasticity in mind to handle the high kicks. It just looks goofy. Like, if you're doing at least, say, a martial art that involves punching and kicking, you kind of transplant that to a career as a policeman or in the army or something, and it just sort of fits more naturally because for close quarters combat – you can just do different versions of kicking and punching. So there's that particular martial art called K-something, Crevillia or something. The one that Jason Bourne does in the Bourne movies. Oh, Krav Magra. That's it. It was, so, it was so, hot for, so hot for a year or two back in That's right. uh, 2004 or whatever. Yeah. Is that the one that's taken by, from the Israeli armed forces or? Yeah, I think it's the Mossad's. Mas- Mas- right. Mossad, Mossad, whatever they're called, sort of. Okay. You know, it's like, okay. it's like battering people with rolled up newspapers or some shit. I don't know. Okay. So you can actually do that as a sport on a gym mat at the Olympics, but you can also transplant it to the military 
to the uh, Navy SEALs to a spy and it still works comfortably. It doesn't look goofy. But kickboxing by a cop wearing a policeman's uniform, it doesn't really work. And there's a scene in this film where he's doing these crazy kicks which just seem entirely unnecessary and the least effective way to take someone down in a close court situation. And then at the end of the scene in the kitchen, and this is where he's shirtless in his white underpants, he just ends up landing in the splits position with his legs between one countertop and the other, <laughs> looking down at the person he's just taken out. Isn't that where he- It's a, it's a meme. Isn't that where he electrocutes, the, the guy gets electrocuted? So he so Van Damme jumps up onto the, you know- <laughs> So he jumps in the air to avoid the electricity and the water on the ground and then kind of like lands with the splits- <laughs> <laughs> in the kitchen. That's great. You sent me the photograph of this still shot and it is just, it's cringe-inducing, it's hilarious. I mean, that's what makes this film a 90s film. It's that kind of thing. Like, they would never do that now. So that's what makes it, to me, a very Van Damme-like movie. Um, so that's that's one criticism to make. Um, but I think, I think just on that, though, I think that's kind of one of the reasons why it's almost aged- well, because it's sort of of its time and sort of unashamedly so, you know, like all that goofy shit that, like you say, they would never do today and if they did the reboot it would be, you know, gritty and and dark. But this is sort of one of the reasons why I like the movie or I'm sort of fond of the movie because of all of that stuff, because of the sort of those 1990s affectations. I think they're great. It definitely gives it a character. Like, you're right. Like, if they had gone for, say, a more naturalistic fighting style and so on, it'd be less identifiable as it is now. I guess that's the point of these 90s films, that they're often working around the casting of their characters. So you mentioned before that you suspect that Stallone is probably a Republican. I think you're probably right. And so when he's in that role, the film is very much catered to him. It's catered to his real-life persona and leans into what you'd expect from Stallone. He's basically playing a fictionalised version of himself. This film here is kind of the same. It's like, you know what, let's just embrace everything that's Van Damme and just go with it and just essentially cut and paste that onto this existing storyline and just make kickboxing more necessary. And in that example I gave before about the electrocution that occurs, Look, I guess it does make sense that he is the sort of guy who could jump out of the, into the air and catch himself in the splits between two countertops more than most people. And so it's it's a it's a lighthearted criticism to make, and I did enjoy the film um, because of that and in spite of that at the same time, if that makes sense. But, yeah, but Van Damme has essentially no range except when he proved himself to be quite the actor in JCVD. In the 1990s, every movie he was just Van Damme. He was just a character with a different name, you know. Uh, you know, you trade out. What's he called in this? Oh, in this he's got a really boring name. In fact, in this they do that thing. In most of his movies he's called something like Chance Chance Boudreau or he's got some sort of ever so slightly uh, European-sounding name. But in this he's just called, like, Walker or something. Yeah. You know, yeah. They they could have called him... You know, uh, uh, I don't know, just something a bit, something a bit, something a bit fruitier. I've got to say though, um, 
I actually found him to be quite a good actor in this movie. So Yeah, he's fine. I think he's a bit like Scott Atkins, who I really like. Scott Atkins is the sort of person who'd be the Van Damme, Stallone or Arnie of the 2000s or 2010s had those types of films kind of resonated in that cult following like good old VHS used to do. Um, if you do a quick Google search or IMDb search for Scott Atkins, you may recognise him and he's a really great action actor. But I actually think he's actually a good actor as well. And I saw aspects of him in Van Damme's performance in this film. So I thought Van Damme was good. I mean, it doesn't make any sense why he's got a French accent at all. Um, that's okay. You just go with it. Um, so in that sense... I thought he didn't drag the film down. He actually he did have enough emotional range for the love interest story, which we should get to now. Actually, mm-hmm. let's discuss a couple of things about how this film did this premise well. So, if you're going to do a time traveling movie, I think it makes sense that you do include a love interest because if there's a if a tragedy of some sort occurs. You can really kind of push the envelope as to there's a job to do, which is to change the past to save the majority of people, to save society, right? That's the job of a law enforcement specialist, doing a job on behalf of everyone else. But what it also does well, I think, is it adds that personal beat, and that is would you go back in time to save the one you love, which would be breaking the rules of your job, but this one's for you. And to me, that's just making the most of a time travel premise really well. And I don't know, I just feel like it it walks that line quite well. And when he does actually go to save his wife, spoilers, he's actually already on a different type of mission and basically making the most of the opportunity going back in time. Um, It also does well in that it does play with that idea as to the first incident where his wife is killed by the baddies is explained as being the bad guys from the future coming back to kill him because he'll kill them because in the past he killed them because they'll kill him. There's some sort of like cyclical storyline happening there. Is that right? I think so, which is kind of weird because it jumps very quickly from that to him being an actual time cop. And I wonder if the bad guys actually created for themselves some sort of self-fulfilling prophecy whereby if they hadn't actually gone back and killed her and shot him, perhaps he would never have even become a time cop. I thought the same thing. Like I was wondering what was the actual catalyst? Like there's a good chance he wouldn't have become a time cop if his wife hadn't been tragically killed. Like if she'd had the baby, he'd be quite happy just walking the regular pavement rather than walking through time. Yeah. Oh, there you go. That's why they called him Walker. <laughs> or maybe. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, I didn't think of that till till now and it's not particularly deep. But, I mean, maybe that's an interesting idea um, um, that the film doesn't really touch on. But you as the viewer can, you know, steeple your fingers and think long and hard about it. Actually, uh, speak, speaking of uh, thinking hard, two more quick points to make. Did you notice how strange it was that the future in this film is essentially a replication of contemporary Trumpism? No. Tell me more. Well, it's quite amazing. So the terms that they use where you've got an influential businessman who's buying his way into power, which is a key point, and there are 
a lot of expressions used, which are would be actually criticisms used now of the way that the current president moved from being in mainstream entertainment into politics, but using money to do so, and very much about the importance of breaking down government and leading with business instead. There are just a few expressions that were used that sound straight out of the playbook of contemporary politics, which I thought, what I thought was really odd. Um, but on a lighter note, the weirdest part for me about time travel was at the very, very start of the film was a scene where this guy comes in to explain they need more funding for this new time travel program. And so this is the bit where he's revealing this top secret project. And he says, well, guess what? Dr. So-and-so did it. He did it. He invented time travel. And that is meant to be the what the fuck moment. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> and the politicians respond, oh, well, how much is it going to cost? You know, like, that's expensive. We can't afford to pay for that. And so the entire conversation is about the funding of this program but- as being another unnecessary folly. <laughs> but, Ben, I thought... I thought that was because those other politicians are idiots, but Ron Silver's character, which they do one of those like slow push-ins because he knows the power this could have. The other politicians are, you know, are interested in, you know, facile funding bullshit. But Ron, Ron's character, he knows the the immense power with which he could wield if he could harness this. So I thought it was that was done on purpose to differentiate him from kind of them, I guess. I think you're exactly right. It's just that <laughs> it does make those other politicians seem particularly stupid. No, true. Yeah, that's right. Like it's like it's like this guy just revealed. Imagine being in a meeting where a guy from some sort of you know clandestine organisation comes to you, and you're a, a an elected member of Congress, and he says, "We've just invented time travel," <laughs> right? And they just skip past the whole. You, you did what? Like what? Like that? That's amazing. You have actually done the unthinkable that we've only read about or watched in movies. You've made people travel backwards and forwards in time. That's incredible. Although the guy puts a caveat and says, in this film, you can't travel forward in time, just backwards. Yeah, because it hasn't happened yet. Exactly. That's the theory in the film. But the way they just so quickly jump through to the cost-cutting personality types like, oh, you, can't, you and your frivolous sort of, you know, special projects, like we're not made of money, you know, like this is the government's money. <laughs> it's it's, it's kind of goofy and you go with it at the time. And as you say, it is to try and juxtapose the more Machiavellian, you know, deep thinking by Ron Silver's character, like, oh, there's a way I could basically, you know, literally and figuratively profit from time travel. But it is just funny watching it to think, you know, they just invented time travel that's a big fucking deal. You, you know what's weird also about time travel? Time travel is like zombies in movies. In zombie movies, no one ever talks about zombies in movies. Time travel's kind of the same. They never have time travel movies, or correct me if I'm wrong, but time travel movies where they refer to other time travel movies because I would have thought as soon as time travel got invented. You mean like the Pulp Fiction of um, time travel, like in Pulp Fiction how they reference popular culture that you and I know as the audience and those characters on screen share the same popular culture history? Kind of. Not necessarily in a really self-referential way, but just that idea that, you know, like in in all zombie movies, it's always like no one's ever seen a zombie movie. Like zombie movies exist in a universe where zombie movies were never made. 
Um, because no one understands that you have to shoot them in the head to begin with. That always has to be explained to people and stuff, you know. And I guess time travel's the 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 same in a way. Like no time travel movie really ever feels like it exists in a world where there were time travel movies. I don't know. Oh, I've got a correction there. Oh yeah, okay. I think actually in Avengers Endgame they do explain that. They actually do reference Back to the Future. Oh, uh, yeah. Paul Rudd says something. That smug fucker. Yeah, exactly. And that's basically that screenwriting trick trick of, uh, quote, hanging a lantern, unquote, where basically you're getting ahead of yourself and knowing what the audience is thinking and you're basically correcting that. And I think in Endgame, correct me if I'm wrong, the way it works in its theory of time travel is that there isn't a backwards and forwards. As soon as you jump back somewhere, that just becomes the new present so i have no idea i just fuck i just zoned out zoned out <laughs> total zone out no idea we should do a podcast actually of infinity war versus justice league for example yeah it's called the zone out zone i i think you'd really like that yeah great awesome <laughs> can't wait <laughs> all right let's move on uh let's do a quick combined review okay notable similarities coincidence or ripoff were there any notable differences Sorry, notable similarities between Demolition Man and Time Cop. I mean, is Demolition Man even a time-travelling movie? Look, it was a bit of a cheeky stretch for this Twin Movies episode. Um, It's not time travel. I mean, he does move forward into the future, albeit being frozen in time. But I think you have to agree it's the same idea about a fish out of water, but it doesn't trade off the idea of, one action affects a different time zone. Uh, yeah, I'll allow it. Okay. Which movie has aged better? Probably Demolition Man, but I think both have aged pretty well. I mean, they're, they're incredibly of their time, but that doesn't make them dated in a way, I guess. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think they've aged quite well overall, and what tropes they have that define the 90s, I think, actually work for the film. Like, you excuse it and actually embrace it. Let's jump ahead to plot holes or missed opportunities. What could the filmmakers have done better with the high concept of either film, starting with Demolition Man? I would have liked to have actually seen President Schwarzenegger. Nice, nice. Okay. <laughs> you know, yep. How about Time Cop? Uh, hmm. I don't know. What do you think? What, is there anything in Time Cop that, that grinded your gears? Yeah, I've got, I've got it, definitely. It's basically there should have been a scene where there's a fight sequence where one of the Van Dams saves the other Van Dam, and then they kind of like walk backwards back to back and then they spin around and they see each other. Like that's the moment you need where basically the Van Dam sees himself. You do get that where he sees himself through a broken window, but it's only momentary. To me, I wanted a Van Dam to save a Van Dam. Ah, uh, I'm seeing double, four crusties. Um yeah, fair. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would have been nice. And I'm really surprised Van Damme didn't go for that because um, <laughs> he has very memorably, I mean, maybe he's done that scene before, you know, double impact, as I mentioned. There's him seeing himself and being like, what? In that. So maybe he just didn't want to tread tread ground that's been trod. Yeah. Jean-Claude Van Trod. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, jump to our trivia. All right. So, little did you know, Gabe, you know the three seashells, which are discussed the whole way through the film, which is the way of going to the toilet. The the iconic three seashells. They are iconic nowadays. Exactly. So, 
it's never explained how the three seashells work, but the screenwriter had mentioned that the backstory was that you use two seashells like chopsticks to remove the waste from your anus. What? And then the third seashell <laughs> to scrape it clean. That's... <laughs> I would have preferred not to have known that. This is like when someone fills in a detail. You know, this is like when people uh, are, oh, why? how did they get those Death Star plans? Well, we got to make a whole fucking movie about it. <laughs> Just leave it. Just leave it. You know, the mystery of the thing is more interesting than the, the, the gross description of the thing, you know. I... <laughs> <laughs> I had a very different idea about how those seashells worked and now that's been ruined for me. So fuck you very much, uh, screenwriter. <laughs> uh, here's another behind-the-scenes fact. Um, apparently, because Snipes is an accomplished black belt in real life, his kicks and punches were so fast on screen that that actually blurred the camera. So the producers actually asked him to slow his movements down, which is so funny because shooting a film now, it's all about authenticity and actually having the actor learn the moves to choreograph the fight sequences. But back then, where films were cut together, basically punch for punch for punch, he was just too naturalistic on screen. I think they- So he had to slow down the punches. I think they said the same thing about Bruce Lee and I think they trot that out for everybody, to be honest, who's a, an accomplished martial artist who was in, in movies. I'm not saying it's not true, but it feels like a trope almost. Like, Yeah, I think, I think so. Uh, another behind-the-scenes bit of fact. Uh, apparently, a Hungarian science fiction writer, Istvan Nemir, said that most of Demolition Man is based on his novel, Flight of the Dead, which was published in 86. And in his novel, a terrorist and a counter-terrorism soldier are frozen and then awakened in the 21st century to find that violence has been purged from society. So, pretty similar. He claimed that apparently... A committee proved that 75% of his movie is identical to the book. But he didn't want to sue, he said, because it was too expensive for him to hire a lawyer. Ah, uh, fair. Uh, another little quick fact. Um, apparently, now, did you see a film which had Taco Bell or Pizza Hut in it? Uh, the one I saw had Pizza Hut. Yeah, same here. So Pizza Hut. Like, bad, like badly dubbed Pizza Hut. So I heard a review by some American podcasters recently revisiting this film and they're talking about Taco Bell because in the film, Taco Bell is the only takeaway franchise that survived the, quote, franchise wars. But all over the world, including in Australia and the UK, as I recall, they transplanted the branding of Taco Bell for Pizza Hut, both using visual effects and at the time just reshooting a few shots. And then redubbed. And so I actually went back and watched a few of the scenes where you see her say Taco Bell, but it's badly dubbed with ADR to say Pizza Hut. Because they actually use the words Pizza Hut quite a few times, which means it must have been quite a challenge to try and switch out all that branding, which is basically imbued throughout the entire film. Yes, and the visual effects to do it are not particularly great. And the dubbing is not particularly good. So they really made a huge effort for the European release. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Uh, now, as for Time Cop, I couldn't find any particularly interesting news about it, except that uh, Max's hairstyle, Max Walker, played by Van Damme, was partially influenced by Wolverine. <laughs> He's got very nice hair um, in this as the- um, it's glorious. Very very 90s hair. Oh, it's just it's real nice. It's real great. If he had a moustache, he'd actually have the- um, 
uh, Colin Farrell, Miami Vice look, I think. <laughs> Could you imagine this movie if he had a big old moustache? Ah, oh, that would have been great. Oh, yeah, spectacular. Yeah. Uh, okay, casting woulda, shoulda, couldas. Uh, so apparently Jackie Chan was wanted in Demolition Man as the first choice, but he declined because apparently Asian audiences at that time didn't like the idea of actors who'd always played heroes suddenly playing evil characters. Did did Jackie Chan ever do a movie with Stallone? Because I think they were trying to, throughout maybe all the 90s, they were trying to do something, but th- that never happened, did it? Or did it? I no. don't think so. Maybe in a, quote, parallel universe. <laughs> nice. Uh, also, interestingly, Sandra Bullock replaced Laura Petty after a few days filming. Oh, really? She left due to creative differences. So- that's interesting because she must have been in Point Break, it would have been two, three years beforehand in 91. So she was so hot right now. And they're two careers that have gone in very different directions since. Yeah, that's interesting. It's always strange when someone gets released or fired or departs after production has begun. You always sort of wonder, and, you know, sometimes you can see, uh, you know, Stoltz as Marty McFly in the behind the scenes. Um, but I always wonder what the real story there was, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, you've got to have a hell of an ego if you're an up-and-coming actor to get dumped for creative reasons. Like either the director must have been a real a-hole or the actor was because, you know, it's an expensive process to do. Um, anyway, Worked out well for Sandra Bullock and her career. So there you go. True. Okay. Spot the Aussie. Starting with Demolition Man. I couldn't couldn't find any. Yeah, I didn't see anyone. I saw no Aussie. How about Time Cop? Did I see an Aussie in Time Cop? I didn't. You did not. No, I do not recall seeing an Aussie. Okay. Wow. Done. All right. Shortest awards of all time. (laughs) All right. Let's jump to the box office. Okay. Which movie was the box office champ, starting with Demolition Man? Have a guess. My guess would be Demolition Man made more money than Time Cop. Yes. So Demolition Man was made for $57 million at the time, pretty reasonable budget back in 93. It made only $58 million in the US, plus another $58 million overseas. So for a grand total, that's not that great for a film – of that size. It was considered to be a bit of a failure at the time. Yeah. So I guess was this at the sort of the beginning of Stallone's kind of 90s downswing career-wise? Yeah, I think so. Around this time, both he and Arnie started dipping in popularity. So after this, he goes from doing this film, this is 1993, then he's got Judge Dredd. Huh. Oh, no, he's got the Specialist in 94. Nice. Dread in 95, Assassins in 95, Daylight 96, Copland we put on the weight in 97, and then Ants in 98, another podcast episode, Get Carter in 2000, and Driven in 2001. Yeah, it's going badly. Well, I mean, yeah, but like The Specialist was pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And Copland. Yeah, yep. But yeah, I think, anyway. In sharp contrast, Time Cop cost half as much to make, $27 million. It did well for its budget. It did 44 to $45 million in the US for a grand total of $101.5 million globally, which is pretty impressive. $27 million. See, is it the sort of movie that sort of wouldn't get made 
do they make 50, like I think $27 million in 1993 buckos is like 50 million bucks. Do they make $50 million action movies? Now that's like way too expensive for DTV and not expensive enough for multiplexes. Yeah, I think you're spot on. In fact, I actually find it hard to see where the money went to for the making of this film because the last, oh, it feels like about basically 40% of the film happens around effectively a haunted house. It's the family home. So we're not talking about a lot of explosions. Uh, it's a lot of just fighting and like broken wood. So it's hard to see where the money went, to be honest. And I agree. I don't think they'd make a film for that mid-budget these days. You either lean in hard to make it for $150 million or you go for sort of like what a – I guess you'd say it's the Euro action film. That's the, the equivalent today, like a Taken. Oh, yeah. So it's probably a $20 million – Oh, yeah. You know, the film's occupied by Le- – What's his name? Jason Statham, those types of films. Um, Liam Neeson movies maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Who's the action hero today? Oh, I'd be the guy – who's the guy – that has the black hair in the Purge sequel too. Oh. That guy. Oh, I like that guy. Uh, yeah, he's a great guy. Ah, the guy. Fuck, this is going to really bother me. God damn it. He's in Warrior. What's his name? Frank. Is his name Frank? Ah, Frank Grillo. Frank Grillo. Yeah. Always good value. Yeah. I sort of feel like, yeah, like he was in a film called Will Man, for example. I sort of feel like that's the type of equivalent movie made today. Uh, or a Scott Atkins film made for probably, what, $5 million? Mm. Yeah, that's right. Well, Wheelman only had a $5 million budget. Um, but maybe, yeah, Taken, maybe something like Taken, $45 million budget, you know, is the – any of those – Yeah, Euro action movie, yeah. Yeah, those Liam Neeson programmers that are all directed by Pierre Morel or some Lusseter guy, whatever his name is. Yeah, the Luc Besson sweatshop of Euro action movies. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Totally. All right, let's move on to Rotten Tomatoes. So starting with Demolition Man, uh, do you think it did better or worse than Time Cop? I feel both of these movies have probably been poorly reviewed and many of those reviewers would probably like to amend their reviews now. All right, well, Demolition Man scored 59% with critics. In sharp contrast, Time Cop got 44%. Actually, that's better than I expected for both of them. Yeah, and jumping to the fans, 66% of fans gave the thumbs up to Demolition Man and only 36% of fans liked Time Cop. Mm, makes sense. Okay, moving on, moving on. Let's get through, through to our awards. So okay. best title, Demolition Man or Time Cop? They're both awesome. For me, I just like Time Cop. Time Cop. It is what it is. I like it. It's like I even like that's one word, you know, like it's like a job. Time Cop. Uh, Demolition Man does make sense as well. Like it's, you know, it's about a guy who demolishes the future uh-huh. and does speak to his personality and so on. Um, it's a bit of a confusing title. It doesn't really allude to the science fiction elements. No. But it certainly captures the action Concepts. It's evocative of a tone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. All right, I'm giving it to Time Cop. How about you? Yeah, give it to Time Cop. All right. Best poster. Now, once again, as always, uh, you can check out the poster on your podcast app if your particular app allows you to see the episode artwork for this particular episode where I put both posters side by side. But if you don't have that, quick description, Demolition Man is what I'd call a pretty generic 1990s poster where it's basically – 
two actors facing each other inside profile, one against the other with their names above them, Stallone, Snipes, that's it. There's nothing more to it with sort of like some sort of like computer-inspired font to signify the future. doesn't really give you a sense as to the futuristic setting at all, but basically get the idea that it's a goodie versus a baddie. To me, it's a pretty boring poster. No, no, it's... It's elegant in its simplicity, Ben. It tells me everything I need to know, that Stallone will face off against Snipes, and that's what I'm putting my hard-earned buckaroos down for. Okay. Well, time cop in comparison, has Van Damme just doing the mugshot looking towards the viewer, uh, time cop is written in green and, again, a computer-style font uh, with a, sort of like a hint to the time travel machine, which, by the way, we didn't discuss. Vaginal. is absolutely ludicrous. It's basically a spaceship on a sled that somehow you sit in, but it throws you into the air when you land in the past, which makes no sense at all. Anywho, uh, and he's holding like a laser gun, which I don't think you actually see appear at all, do you? I think it's just a gun with a, a, a laser point. Like a red dot sight, oh, but okay. it's not a great poster. I'm giving it to Time Cop because I just find the colour aesthetics to be more pleasing to my eye. Boo, I'm giving it to Demolition Man. All right, it's a draw. It's a draw. All right. Uh, the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. Who, like those guys jumping into the film Armageddon from an indie career, who got their first big break in these twin movies, starting with Demolition Man? I mean, it's not the movie that made her a star, but Sandra? Sandra, Miss Bullock? Yeah, I think it was a big step up for her. I think this is the film that kind of like just kept elevating her career and made her, you know, not quite a Julia Roberts American darling, but certainly a darling who was loved by the audiences. Mm. Who's she up against in Time Cop? Hmm. Hmm. I don't think there was anyone really uh, that got their big break. Uh Everyone was kind of already established or already had their break, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't really remember Gloria Rubin being in many movies before this, but I might have just not seen Shadowhunter or Wild Orchid 2. <laughs> but I also don't remember her being in many movies after this. So, what? Um, yeah, I agree. She was actually really good, I thought. But, yeah, I didn't see her in those films either. I feel like she should have had a career launch after this film and didn't. So something went wrong. Bad choices perhaps by her agent. I mean, she was in like 100 episodes of ER. So, Oh, well, that counts. All right. Well, uh, perhaps she's the nominee. What do you think? Yeah, sure. Give it to whoever you like. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and with great enthusiasm, uh, Gloria Rubin, the award is yours, the Ben Fleck Award. Okay. Or the Bill of Fleck Award. Okay, next one, moving on. The Before They Were Famous Award or Blink and You'll Miss Them, starting with Demolition Man. I didn't notice him, but I read that Jack Black is in the movie. No. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I didn't spot him at all. No, neither did I. But apparently he's in there as I think one of Dennis Leary's guys. Oh, yeah. He has like a title of Wasteland Scrap. So he must, he must have basically been like a... Just a background player. Yeah. All right. So he's our nominee. Well. Um, apparently apparently Jesse Ventura was as well. <laughs> wait. Was just in the background somewhere. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, right. Oh, I didn't yeah. I didn't notice him either. Huh. All right. So Jack Black's a nominee for that one. How about in Time Cop? Um, hmm. I didn't notice anyone with the same sort of, you know, 
uh, prestige as Mr. Black. Um, All right, well, that's it. Let, let's let's move on. Jack Black gets it. There you go. No need to litigate this. No. He's got it. Done. Jack, your Before They Were Famous award will be sent by DHL or FedEx when transport is once again moving past the pandemic. Now, moving on to the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stiller Award, named after Tommy Lee Jones' supporting role in The Fugitive. Who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role, starting with Demolition Man? Well, I'm going to skip Demolition Man and just say my vote is for Ron Silver in Time Cop. Look, it wasn't small and it wasn't poorly written, but I feel he stole the show. Can I give him this award or is this another award that I've already jumped to? No, no, no. He'd always receive more than one award. I agree. Ron Silver. uh, I don't know why Ron Silver hasn't done more or more that I've seen (laughs) because those two things perhaps don't exist together. But that's the problem is that- He's dead. (laughs) He died. He died in 2009. How did he die? Overacting. Yeah. He's so slippery. I feel like he was in way more movies- than he was, or I've somehow in my memory transplanted him into many movies as just the slipperiest guy. Like he plays a sleazebag, like Jimmy Woods and him, you know, like there's just no no actor seedier. Well, if you look at his IMDb page, it's surprising he wasn't in more films that were recognisable. He was really good playing a character called Bruno in The West Wing. He was in 19 episodes and that's where I most recently remember him. But I think he's fantastic in this film, and I'm so surprised he wasn't cast in more. Like, he was in 20 episodes of Veronica's Closet, whatever that is. He was in 11 episodes of Chicago Hope. But I sort of feel like he never quite got his Avatar movie, like a big-budget film where he was the baddie and got the recognition he deserved because I thought it was really good. So it's a shame. I sort of feel like he definitely could have had many more roles if given the right roles. Yep. Agreed. To leverage off. Agreed. Um, all right. So Ron gets it. The Tommy Lee Jones Show Stiller Award. Moving on. Maybe he could also pick up this award, the Mickey Rourke Award, named in honour of the troubled actor who squandered his chance to t- kick on with bigger roles. Who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in these films? Okay. Can I go first? Go. So there, is, there are questions, big questions to be asked about she of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh, Mia Sara. Yes, Mia Sara, who was the love interest in Ferris Bueller, who was iconic. She was the dream girl for many viewers back in the day then. She'd be the dream girl for many viewers watching Ferris Bueller now for the first time. Mia Sara um, didn't really kick on with the, many, with the career, and I'm surprised by that. Um, she falls in that category of the actor who played Marty McFly's girlfriend in the first Back to the Future. These iconic roles, and they just didn't kind of kick on, which surprises me. Whoever that was, that was, she was actually replaced in the sequel, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. Well, apparently in real life her mother died, and so she had to reconsider, you know, the priorities in her life, which is fair enough, but wasn't able to recover after that. Uh, Mia Sarah, I mean, if you look at IMDb, she has a look that hasn't aged badly with time at all and it just appears that she just didn't choose the right movies. I mean, yeah, she has a hit list of C-grade, B-grade movies since Ferris Bueller. Now, look, admittedly that was her second movie, but she was in Legend the year before. So she came off out of the gate with a bang 
and then just appeared in some crap TV shows and never really just kicked on. It's it's a very interesting career. Like her last film was in a short film in 2013. Uh, she was in a film called Dorothy and the Witches of Oz in 2012. Just some very odd choices. She had one role in a 2005 episode of CSI New York. Like perhaps it's just one of the simple situations that she, for very good reasons, uh, valued family instead mm. and stepped away from the spotlight. Perhaps. I mean, look, I watch any old crap and I've watched a lot of crap, but fuck, I haven't even heard of some of these movies that she would have done right after Ferris Bueller when, yeah, you would have thought she would have been so hot so hot and so hot in Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Um, as for Demolition Man, I couldn't really see anyone there who squandered their opportunities. So I'm going to give it to her, unfortunately, Mia Sarah. Okay. Give it to her. All right, moving on. The Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Award. Who came out on top in each of these movies and was it their career high? Starting with Demolition Man. Hmm. Hmm. Well, it wasn't JCVD's career oh, high. Oh, 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 my goodness. I just forgot. Sorry. What? 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 Wow. I just forgot. Beep, beep, beep. For the reverse to the previous award. Uh-huh. I can't believe it. You and I just left out the most obvious potential winner for the Mickey Rourke Award who didn't kick on. The director of Demolition Man. Oh, yeah. Who was that guy? Like what? Marco Bram- Brambilla. Brambilla? Yeah. It's very curious. This is- so this is his first film. He's a video collage artist and a commercials filmmaker, but seems to be basically more of a an artist than a commercial director. He does Demolition Man in 93, his first movie. Which is a very weird choice. It's so weird. Than if he was just some sort of like, yeah. So he's basically an artist. Oh, by the way, I should also add he's an Italian artist. Yeah, the worst kind. <laughs> What would those guys know that paint on ceilings and walls? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, those guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. The Ninja Turtles. Um, they, paint, they paint churches, don't they? Yeah. Um, nice. So he's outside America. He's outside Hollywood. He's outside filmmaking. He somehow gets the keys to drive the giant vehicle that is Demolition Man, which would have had a huge budget, big ego-driven stars, he has no history of directing stars or actors at all. Special effects, visual effects. I, I mean, it's insane. After this, he goes on to do Excess Baggage four years later, 1997, which is that vehicle with Alicia Silverstone and Benicio Del Toro and Christopher Walken. Oh, yep. Um, but that was like a much smaller, you know, comedy thriller action movie. Um, and then- he just kind of like vanishes after that. He does three episodes of a TV show called Dinotopia. Uh, then he does a Kanye West music video in 2010, a short film called RPM in 2011, another short film in 2012 called Evolution Met- Mechaplex. And I assume these two short films are probably essentially long commercials. But what happened to him? I mean, maybe he's a commercial, like maybe he just directs commercials or something. It, it, it's such a weird choice, though. Can you imagine being in the room and be like, oh, we've got this big Stallone action vehicle with him and Snipes. Who should we get to do it? Well, I know the perfect guy. He's a video collage artist. I know. It, it's weird. It's weird. Like, it, it, it's, it sort of reminds me of when they, you know, got um, 
oh, what were their names? Uh, AJ Jankel and Rocky Morton, who created Max Headroom to direct the big budget Super Mario Brothers movie. And it's like a, an odd choice, you know. The 90s, man. What a time. Well, apparently uh, Brambilla is still doing uh, his video essays and stuff, you know, mainly in gallery, galleries like uh, MoMA, Guggenheim, the San Fran Museum of Modern Art, etc. And he's basically still an artist. So I guess he didn't like mainstream Hollywood. So there you go. Well, I mean, if his stuff's being hung in the Guggenheim, he's obviously doing pretty well. So good on him nonetheless. Maybe Mia Sarah still keeps the award. Because he's kicked on to have a different career and been successful elsewhere. So, all right, Mia, you've got the award still. The award's still yours. Okay, fair. Okay, moving on. Uh, who came out on top? Back to the winner winner chicken dinner award. Starting with Demolition Man. I'm going to say, I'd say the director, Brambilla, because he did a great job and the film's become iconic for good and bad reasons. I, I thought Wesley Snipes was great. Yeah. Was this, what did Wesley Snipes, he'd, he hadn't done Blade yet, but he had done New Jack City, so he was already sort of a, a star. Yeah, he was already quipping. So he's my nominee for that one. How about Time Cop? Who's your nominee? Who came out on top of Time Cop? I mean. Peter Hyams, the director? Well. Or Ron Silver? Yeah, I guess. No one jumps off the, off the IMDb, as it were. All right, let's give it to Wesley Snipes for Demolition Man. Yeah, always bad on black. Best dialogue award. <laughs> what's your favourite quote? Speaking of Wesley Snipes, what's your favourite quote? Was anything memorable? Because this was back in the day of the quips, the 90s quips. Did anything kind of like uh, make you go, oh, oh, that's very clever? T- I mean, maybe not clever, but there's tons of great dialogue in Demolition Man. You know, the jokes about the Schwarzenegger library. It's great stuff. I love uh, John Spartan's line, send a maniac to catch one. Nice. Yeah, totally. Um, hey, Luke Skywalker, use the force. <laughs> yeah. Anytime you do the swearing, you know, shit brain, fuck face, ball breaking, duck fucking pain in the ass. You, you, I, I like I like a bit of swearing. Um, I love Simon Phoenix's uh, self-aware comment like, wait a minute, this is the future. Where are all the phaser guns? Yeah. Like it's what you and I would say. I like that. Um, he finally matched his mate. You really licked his ass. <laughs> uh, uh, John Spartan, you're going to regret this for the rest of your life, both seconds of it. Yeah, nice. Hey, you know what? When I was a kid, the VHS of this movie, on the back cover, it had a picture of Wesley Snipes' frozen, kicked-off head. They had this fucking huge spoiler on the back of the VHS. Of the head being... Kicked off. Yeah, it was like a it was like a picture of Wesley Snipes' frozen head. It was like, what do you put that on there for? <laughs> We're weird. I guess though, if you hadn't seen the movie, you could have just thought that's how they're frozen. You wouldn't realize that's the ending of the film. They they, they remove the head. <laughs> well, we're gonna <laughs> they kicked off, man. Kicked off. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. All right, uh, let's go to quotes from Time Cop. Anything memorable there? Well, not as memorable as um, not as memorable as um, um, Demolition Man. But Ron Silver has a few nice lines that he says to himself, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, like never interrupt me when I'm talking to myself. Yeah, that, that, that's quite good. I like that one. Um, how about the uh, self-referential one where Walker says he must have read my mind, and Melissa says 
the way you speak English, you'd have to. <laughs> ah, nice. Uh, um, look, I, I think Demolition Man, just because of the sheer volume of lines, has to win this one. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. All right, let's get to a good award for a good time, excuse the pun, in filmmaking history. The Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award, starting with Demolition Man. Who lays it on thick? I mean, you'd have to say Wesley Snipes, Snipes, right? Yeah. 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 But he does it well. I mean, he chews this. Like, he does it well. Like, it, it works for the movie. The, the role calls for the scenery chewing. He is essaying scenery chewing and acquitting himself admirably. Yeah, I agree. I agree. How about Time Cop? <clears throat> well, Ron. Ron is doing some, some pretty big acting. So if you take the chewing the scenery of Ron in an arm wrestle with the chewing of scenery of Snipes, I mean, who's going to lay it down? Snipes, I think, is, I mean, everyone except for Sly, I guess, in Demolition Man is kind of chewing the scenery. You know, they're all delivering performances that are definitely pitched at, you know, 110%. Yeah, okay, let's give it to Snipes then. All right. Weasley, you can add that to your other Raspberry Awards? Surely he's won a raspberry, right? Really? For what? I'm not sure. Uh, uh, maybe he hasn't. No. Uh, we'll revisit that another late, later date. He was nominated for a Razzie for Demolition Man. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, there you go. There you go. All right. The Taking a Paycheck Award speaks for itself, starting with Demolition Man. So who's cashing in their chips to try and make some serious coin? Actually, I'm sorry. But just before we do that, it was Sandra Bullock who was nominated for a Razzie. That seems really unfair. Oh, that seems harsh. I thought she was playing the character that she should have played. Like she was meant to be playing the the innocent, you know, yeah. the sweet-talking girl. Fuck you, Razzie Awards. Piece of shit awards. Fuck you indeed. All right. Uh, who's taking a paycheck? Um, would we consider that Dennis Leary is? Nah, Dennis Leary was happy to be in movies back then. Okay. Uh, look- I don't think anyone was slumming it. Like, this isn't like we've got someone like, um, you know, Kurt Douglas <laughs> playing a captain for a small role. So I can't see anyone trying to get some coin for a small performance there for two days' work. And in Time Cop, again, I don't think that this film was big enough in budget to pay someone for a small appearance. No. So I think it's a draw. No one. Fair enough. Hey, did you know Stallone um, sued Warner Brothers? Uh, last year because he felt that the movie, the, the studio had claimed the film still hadn't gone into profit, but he felt that he was owed profit participation and that it probably had, in fact, gone into profit. So maybe uh, maybe that's the paycheck of which we speak. All right, let's give an honorary paycheck award to Stallone, who clearly needs more money. All right, jumping on to the Stephen Tobolowsky Award, a.k.a. Hey, It's That Guy, named after the iconic supporting actor who appeared in Ground Day as Ned Ryerson. Gabe, who triggered Hey, It's That Guy when he or she appeared on screen, starting with Demolition Man? I mean, Bob Gunton, who plays the chief of police. You know, he popped up in a bunch of things in the 90s. I think most memorably is the warden in Shawshank Redemption, but he always turns up in stuff. You're like, ah. Yeah, you're totally right. Like, the Shawshank Redemption role he's iconic for and I couldn't quite place where I'd seen him, but he's definitely like a classic example of the Stephen Tobolowsky Award. Uh, in Time Cop, I'd nominate Bruce McGill. I love that guy. Who everyone would recognise in a movie, 
But I don't even know how you describe him. <laughs> uh, portly. Um, <laughs> portly. Has is there a particular film though we could point to? Like when you mentioned earlier the guy from the Shawshank Redemption, like people get that guy. Oh, it's that guy. But I can't actually think of a single film like Groundhog Day, like Shawshank, that I could point to where you'd recognise Bruce McGill from. Maybe The Insider, but I guess maybe not. You know, he's, he's very he's, he's great in The Insider. He's got a kind of uh, very memorable deposition scene. Um, but, yeah, I mean, maybe he doesn't have that sort of iconic role, but he, he crops up in a lot of stuff and it's always nice when he does. All right. I'm going to nominate him, and I say we uh, award him this one. Okay. Done. Bruce McGill, you may not have an Oscar, but you do have the Stephen Tobolowsky Award, and it is deserving. Jumping to the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough, obviously named after the great Delroy Lindo from Get Shorty Heist and A Life Less Ordinary. Let's start with Demo Man. Who's deserving of the Delroy Lindo? Someone to be cast more. Yeah. Rob Schneider. Is Rob Schneider? <laughs> Actually, was Rob Schneider famous at this stage? He could have picked up the early award too. Uh, was he? I don't know. What? 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 What movie made him famous? Well, I mean, look, that's the thing. There's the films that he appeared in with Adam Sandler. Basically, Adam Sandler throwing him a bone, and then I think you'd have to say it's Juice Bigelow, right? Or The Animal. Those two films around the. Oh, late 90s, early 2000s. I think they were the first vehicles he had where he was actually starring, mm. not just sort of standing in as, you know, Adam Sandler's mate. Buddy. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, he had he done Judge Dredd was after this. Fuck, Stallone must have liked working with him so much he brought him back for Judge Dredd. Well, maybe he was one of those actors who wasn't good-looking enough or muscly enough to threaten Stallone. <laughs> so he played like a, a good kind of, you know, like a good foil or a good little side character. I, I guess now is also a good time, though, while we're just chatting about Mr. Schneider, to say he's in a great movie with JCVD called Knock Off, directed by Sue Hark. Just absolute two big thumbs up, some next-level good filmmaking in a dumb-as-shit movie. What's it called? Knock Off. It's about... Um, Van Damme and Rob Schneider make counterfeit jeans. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> That's great. It's fucking, it's, it's like, it's really great. It's really cool. I mean, look, it's, it's not, but it is, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> now, am I totally misremembering Demolition Man or was James Olmos in that film as well? Really? Or maybe I've totally misremembered entirely. Maybe I'm just totally confusing Bob Gunton. But look, as it stands, we need to put a nominee forward for Delroy Lindo. So you're putting forward Rob Snyder, terrible choice. <laughs> uh, I'm going to put forward um, Bob Gunton. And for time travel, I'm going to nominate, well, I would have said Ron Silver, but he's, unfortunately he died. So I'm going to put forward Bruce McGill because I do like him in everything. Yeah. Give it to McGill or Gorilla. All right, McGill's got it. All right, moving on to the Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. In these films, Gabe, who steals the cake for the most ludicrous name, oh. noting oh. that in Time Cop we don't have the same choice collections we usually do from Van Damme. Uh, were there any- Time Cop, Time Cop has no chance here, zero chance. No? Okay. Man, the names in Demolition Man, this is 
glorious shit, man. Go for it. John Spartan. John Spartan. I mean, you, how good is that? You know he's going to be the hero. Simon Phoenix, that's a badass name. Lenina Huxley, ooh, intellectual. I like it. <laughs> what else have we got? Uh, Raymond Cocteau. Cocteau? I don't know how to pronounce that properly. Look, it's really though. Oh, Edgar Friendly is also a, a very funny name. Alfredo Garcia. That's Benjamin Bratt. Oh, yeah, well, that's that's just two two names. That's just that's that's. I don't know. Um, well, well, it sounds it sounds hoity-toity. Alfredo Garcia, bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. <laughs> um, look, John Spartan and Phoenix are great, right? They they are what they are. One sounds like a warrior, sounds stoic. The other one sounds like a rebel. Um, I'm giving it to Demolition Man here. Easily on a, on a plate. Oh yeah, by a wide margin. In fact, this is probably one of the one of the more better uh, silly name movies we've had in a while. We had a kind of maybe a a dry patch there where there wasn't enough dumb names in movies, and uh, I feel like this has really brought it brought it back. And now we've hit the wet patch of names. <laughs> oh, just moisten. <laughs> All right. We'll get through these last awards. Okay. The Memento Award, name for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatched these movies, starting with Demolition Man. Uh, actually, I'd forgotten that Dennis Leary was in it and weirdly most of that whole subplot. Yeah, so had I. I'd completely forgotten about these underground people who are initially portrayed as being baddies or rebels, but they're actually just hungry, right? Yeah, mole people. Um, I had totally blanked on all of that being in there. And how about Time Cop? Uh, oh, I mean, lots of stuff in Time Cop because I hadn't seen this for ages. That like, just stuff. I was like, ha, ah, that's fucking awesome. Like when he kicks the the guy's arm freezes and Van Damme kicks his frozen arm off. Just oh, that's a great scene. A plus. Yep. Just great stuff. Yeah. I'm gonna give it to Demolition Man because I also hadn't forgotten an entire C plot. <laughs> yeah, totally. Of Dennis Leary and Co. So that picks up the Memento Award. I agree. All right. The Die Hard Award, named after the influence of Die Hard inspiring a subgenre of uh, clones like Under Siege. So if imitation is the ultimate flattery, did either of these flicks leave a legacy by inspiring a crop of clones? I don't think so. I mean, time travel's been around since the dawn of time. I don't think these films but set a new trend in a particular version of time travel as a genre. Do you? No, no. I mean, Terminator 2 had come out in 1991, so it's not like there hadn't been a shit ton of time travel movies before these. Um, if you could go back in time and invent time travel movies, maybe, but no. All right, no award winner then. And now it's come to that time of the podcast, one of my favourite parts of the pod, the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of runaway bus in a crowded city and relocated it to a sluggish cruise ship. So, Gabe, so imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to Demolition Man or Time Cop. They're both about a cop who skips through time with a chance to redeem himself by stopping a villain who ruined his future. So which film, if we're asked to by a Hollywood executive, do we make a sequel to... And what's our pitch to make it? Go. Hey, I just had a weird idea. Would there be a way to, you're not even making a sequel, you are making a, you take Time Cop, right, and then you sort of, I'm just thinking, you get like, you shoot new stuff with old Van Damme going back in time into Time Cop. So you use 
existing bits of Time Cop and then sort of recontextualize those, remix it all, if you will, in a sort of like sequel slash postmodernistic reinterpretation. Oh, this is a genius idea. Now, hang on, let's just step it back. The logical thing to do if we're given the opportunity to do a sequel to Demolition Man of Time Cop is to look at which one made the most money and which one has stars you could bring back, which would help the next film to make a lot of money. And on the face of it, Demolition is that particular film. It's got Sandra Bullock, it's got Stallone, it's got cult value, and it made more money. But it's not a true time travel movie. It's about someone frozen in time who wakes up and will turn to the future. And you can't explore those cool ideas about trying to reinvent the present by going back to the past. But a true time travel movie like Time Cop you can do And what's cool about that is that in every time travel movie, like Back to the Future, you have to age the actors, right? They have to look younger in the past and older in the present or the future. But here you could actually lean into the gap in time where you actually have preserved the 1994 look of Mr. Van Damme and then you complement it in a way with new footage and as long as you just integrate the aesthetic, it'd be like a movie on a movie. Yeah. It's like all the jerk-off artistry of boyhood. <laughs> <laughs> so it's basically boyhood meets time cop. Like time cop. It was only ever half the story, you know, and now here is old Van Damme going back and seeing the two other Van Dams, and I don't know, like I think I feel like at this stage. Oh, so do we, we have three Van Dams? Do we? Well, there's the two Van Dams that existed currently in Time Cop, but now old Van Dam or current day Van Dam um, is also going back and somehow moving through those scenes. I mean, I suppose we could really lean into the um, you know um, artistry of this. Van Dam is obviously at this point in his career willing to do some weird shit. So you know. Maybe it doesn't even have to be an action movie. Maybe it's like a a, tri- a treatise on on aging and and that 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 although they can time travel, there is still an inescapable march of time that will slowly grind your dreams away. <laughs> Mate, the pitch for this is right in front of us, and we're not even looking at it. Oh. It's the self-referential JCVD movie, which was basically a fictionalised version of Van Damme. He's playing a version of himself in a bank robbery movie where he basically reflects about, upon the mistakes he's made in his life. That film did very well. It, had, it was critically acclaimed but also worked for the big sort of action 90s fans of Van Damme. Mm, and Van Damme's fucking great in it. Like He's great, right? Really good acting. He's, he took he took the piss out of himself in that Volvo commercial where he does the splits oh, yes. on two Volvo semi-trailers that are travelling at 70 kilometres per hour and he's slowly widening his legs. Like, he gets what's good about Van Damme. He's already done it in JCVD, so we know he's up for it. So isn't the pitch for this just going to be Time Cop meets JCVD? Sure, I'd watch it. Now, does he revisit himself in a film? So in our movie called Time Van Damme, Does he revisit himself? I think we should just call it Time Cop. (laughs) (laughs) Or Time Cop 2. So what's our pitch? What's our pitch? Because basically what happened is he goes to the funeral 
of the director, Peter Himes. Has Peter Himes died yet? No, no, he has not. He still sh- he shot his son's movie recently. Okay. Peter Himes is on his deathbed. Oh. Just like Jason Rubens in Magnolia. And like Tom Cruise, Van Damme goes to his deathbed. Wow. Okay. And he says, do you have any regrets or any secrets to tell? And Peter Himes says, I do. Okay. I never told you this, but when doing research for Time Cop, I actually discovered time travel. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) And Van Damme says, tell me more because I have demons (laughs) and I must try and resolve those demons. And so Peter Himes explains that the prototype of that transport sled, that time travel sled, is based on real science and sends Van Damme to meet a mysterious character who's pretty much the same guy we see with the with the radar dishes and stuff in that movie Heat. What's his name again? Uh, Tom Noonan? Tom Noonan. He goes to see a Tom Noonan character. Okay. Like in Heat. Uh-huh. Who explains how they met a time travel, but he can only go back in time to one place. What if what if he can only travel back in time to his own movies? Like he can't he can only it's like you can try and travel, but you can't try and travel anywhere. What do you mean? You can only go into your own films. So it's dimension travel, basically. I don't. Oh, I see. So it's called Dimension Cop. You're saying he can go back in time to to the making of his movies, whereas I'm saying he go back into the actual movies. Yes, that's why we call it Dimension Cop. That's what makes it self-referential is that- It's a bit last action hero. Yeah, well, that film wasn't a great success. Mm. Woo! <laughs> let's let's drop a reference. Let's drop a reference to that film from our bitch. Shut up. Okay. We- Why did you bring that up, you fucking idiot? <laughs> <laughs> so the studio executive is chewing his or her cigar and now questioning the entire uh, financial viability of this particular pitch. Okay. Let's not reference Last Action Hero, but let's get this clear on the page. Is he going back in time? to visit the set of the films he was on or is it which is more like JCVD or is he going back into different dimensions and appearing like in particularly in Time Cop as the third Van Damme I would like in which case this film is called Dimension Cop Well to me that's interesting because then he can be truly squaring off against uh the metaphorical demons of his past as opposed to just going back in time and yelling at the craft service guy, you know. Um, (laughs) um, I feel like, you know, yeah, if we could somehow make it so that he he goes back and maybe maybe Time Cop is just the first movie he travels to. I would like to see him revisit all of the movies where he played multiple roles. Isn't it? And in this way he gets to play multiple roles in every single one of his movies. Couldn't this be like a genius world-building idea where essentially you take an action 80s icon like anyone in the Expendables trilogy of films and essentially you just transplant them back into one of their old films? In fact, you basically splice them back into a film, much like how they have, in a very appreciated way, brought, uh, you know, um, a an iconic actor back to life to advertise whiskey or something like that, Right. Because that, that works every time, doesn't it? <laughs> it's great. Love to see Bruce Lee flogging fucking insurance. Wouldn't this be a genius way, though, for people to basically relive one of their classic films they love from the 80s and 90s, 
but with modern technology to integrate the actor going back. And essentially, it's like world building. So in every film, Van Damme or someone like Stallone goes back and meets their younger, hotter version, which is kind of the vibe you get in one of those Terminator films where you see Arnie fight against younger, fitter Arnie. But it's like that in every film. So it's, for Van Damme, maximum risk, sudden impact. And so back in the, back in the day, it was all about saying, what's better than one Van Damme? Two Van Dams. And our pitch, the agent or the executive producer, as we lean forward to bring this pitch home for this sequel or a series of sequels to say, what's better than two Van Dams? Three Van Dams in many, many movies. Boom. Do you think do you think he can still do the splits? Well, he did the splits recently in that Volvo commercial, so I think he can. God damn it, Van Dam. Is there anything you can't do? <laughs> so what's the title for this particular sequel to Time Cop gonna be? Well, I, I just have one question before we get to the title of it. What does he actually want or is he doing back in these movies? Is he just you said you said he's going back to fight some sort of demons. I feel that you you meant some sort of metaphorical demon, not a literal demon. Uh, but what if it was both? Is all I'm saying. What if what if <laughs> Van Dan's demons are personified in a demon? Oh, so it's sort of like um, it's like the dragon within. I don't know what that is, but it is definitely the idea that subtext is for cowards. <laughs> all right, bring it home. Let's bring this pitch home. The executive is about to sign the line, gives a check to write the first draft. So so, so, so JCVD is travelling back through time through his movies to fight his metaphorical and non-metaphorical demons who have somehow taken over his pictures, are haunting him from the past as a way that we are making comments on ageing and star power waning and so on. That's the thing, right? Exactly. Okay. And, and his agenda is to basically resolve his demons, get off the booze, stop snorting coke, and try and redeem the relationships of those around him at the time, which will hopefully lift the quality of his films and ensure he has a brighter future as an A-class and affluent actor in 2020. Hmm. And we're calling this JCVD V2? It's it's really, yeah, VJCV2. G Jean Claude. All right, done. <laughs> done. Okay. I think I just <laughs> softly sung the word Jean Claude. <laughs> All right. And that's how you make a sequel to Time Cop. I don't think we made a sequel to Time Cop there. We made a sequel to the career of JCVD. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm there for that. All right. That brings us to the end of the show, Gabe. A big, huge, massive thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, for making this episode sound so good. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick. That'll do. And I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube.com slash Ben Phelps. And you can find all of my podcasts, including Twin Movies, in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening, folks. Really appreciate it. If you like the show, please share the word with your mates and uh, leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts as every bit of uh, goodwill helps. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.